I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about Africa. Today I want to talk about the end of advertising, why it had to die and the creative resurrection to come, the book by Andrew Essex. Andrew Essex is a former journalist. He was the executive editor of Details, uh, and after Details he went off to Absolute, not the vodka, but the magazine, and is written for people like Entertainment Weekly and Salon.com. So an accomplished journalist, and after he was a journalist, and this is why we should all be paying attention to what he has to say, he was an ad man, and not just any ad man. He founded, along with Dave Droga, the famous ad shop Droga 5, where he was CEO for about 10 years. So a pretty amazing accomplishment for somebody to just walk on, just walk on to the field. Walked on, became a Yankee. Uh, and he's still in the advertising biz. He was just actually quoted in the ad age this week, that's April 2nd, 2018, talking about the future of creative shops in the advertising business and standing strong for creative shops. So that's the, that's the guy's significance to the ad agency world. He left Droga a while ago now, and he went to become CEO of the Tribeca Film Festival. He's since quit that job. He's written four books, including this one. And uh, I think it's pretty fair to say he's very media establishment, you know, if you consider the guy's resume, right? He's written for big media outlets. And his attitude, for instance, you know, scattered in certain places throughout the book are these compliments for the New York Times. And he's pretty pretty serious New York Times fanboy. He quotes uh, uh, Emily Nussbaum, who's their TV critic, quite a few times. Anyway, uh, like I said, part of the media establishment. And the other interesting thing about the guy is he came into and left advertising. He voted with his feet. And it's pretty clear that he's ambiguous about it all and, and very ambivalent about the link between money and art. You know, he's not a, uh, let's just say, like a Renaissance sculptor who's very comfortable having a patron. In fact, he, he refers to the process of paying for art as grody. Uh, and he refers to a rather famous NFL quarterback as, as promiscuous for doing what he sees as too many uh, product promotions. So I think for him, it's 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 a bit of a disgusting, almost slutty business. And I think that's one of the keys to understanding why he's so focused on creative as content. In other words, it, it's not just a squalid commercial transaction. It's in some way art. So what's the structure of the book? Well, the book's divided into three, three chapters. The first chapter is Adblockalypse Now, which is a great name for a chapter. And it really kind of says it all, right? It's, it's all about the, the problem with ad blocking and the threat it poses to advertising, right? That's the thing that's causing the end of advertising. Then there's a chapter on the origins of advertising. And then finally, a chapter on the future of advertising, where he kind of makes the point that adding value is everything. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think it's a great diagnosis of advertising. And I don't think it's a great prescription for fixing what's wrong. Which leads me to ask, what is the value of reviewing this book? Well, I think the book is worth talking about, and I think the conversation is worth having because it's an excellent framework for thinking. So if you're a professional ad man or ad woman, it's a great perspective on the ad business from somebody who has sort of a wider field of view than just the ad business and who also operated at a very high level in the ad business. So that's all very useful and very interesting. And he asks a bunch of really interesting existential questions. What is advertising? What is the enterprise? What is the output of that enterprise? What's it driving at? What's the end of it? And so once we know those things, we can start to say what good advertising is. And he asked that question too, right? Are you a fine artist like like the folks at Droga 5? I mean, they you look at their recent Michael Phelps work that won a bunch of awards. Um, it's a beautiful feature film with, a, with an Under Armour logo at the end of it. Is that what advertising is? Is that a great ad? Depends on what you think advertising is doing. It depends on what you think your job is as a creative. Then finally, there's the question that's raised by the title of the book itself. What's the future of advertising? Is it going to be creative driven? Is it going to be driven by something else? There's a great study by Nielsen that I'll link to in the show notes, it's all about the relative contribution of creative and then media planning and other stuff to the success of a bunch of campaigns, hundreds, they did a study of. And it shows that while creative still number one, it's number one by a much smaller margin than it was in the past. And that's very much worth thinking about. And it doesn't mean we have to all resort to being, you know, data scientists, but it, it does mean we have to take very seriously what 
the future of advertising is going to look like and what our and what our what our business structures are going to be in the future. I mean, it, 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 it implicates absolutely everything that we do. So it's very worth talking about. It, it's a hot topic in the industry. There's a piece that Essex was quoted in in Ad Age this week is all about that. What is the agency of the future? And by implication, they're asking, what is the kind of work we're going to be doing in the future? And how does that come around to you as a creative? Well, say you're going into a pitch. You probably want to talk about something relevant and interesting, and that's likely to work. And by thinking about the future of advertising, I think it helps us sort of ground ourselves and figure out, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? If you're a non-professional, I think this is a great grounding for conversations with your agency. And trying to figure out where they fall on this creative sort of fine artist versus creative equals getting people to buy things and sort of figuring out where you line up and where you think you should be. That'll put you in a position to have pretty fruitful conversations with any ad agencies that you're managing or considering bringing on board. As this book points out, that's, that's not as obvious as you might think. And then another interesting question is, is, is advertising an obnoxious occupation that you need to feel bad about? Or is it doing something fundamental and important in capitalism that we all need to sort of stand back and appreciate a little bit more than we do? And finally, there's the question of digital and its impact on advertising. Of course, that's the, and that's according to Essex, the freedom that digital consumption of media gives us is going to be the end of advertising because we can then block out or avoid um, advertising that we don't like. So what he's saying is we all need to compete for uh, attention that's sort of voluntarily given to us by our ad consumers. And do you agree with that or not? I think that's, a, that's, that's also an open question. All right, so with that out of the way, let's look at Adblockalypse now, the first chapter in the book. This book, this, this chapter rather, is really kind of hand-wringing about ad-blocking, and, or at least it starts to come off as hand-wringing about ad-blocking, but I think there's something actually bigger in there. So this is how it goes. It starts with this Howard Stern story where uh, Howard is berating his people uh, because they never told him he could block internet ads. And that sort of segues into how much he hates internet ads. Doesn't everybody hate internet ads? Then we get into a little autobiography about Andrew Essex, and he talks about who he is and, and his, um, his bona fides, and then talks about his surrender to ad blocking and how great it was uh, when ad blocking became available to him. And he gets his son into it, and then he gets into this sort of discussion about what he's really talking about, I think, is channel fragmentation and freedom, the freedom that digital gives you to dodge advertising. He never uses those terms, but you know what it put me in mind of was this problem that people have, we have, that people can just avoid ads. He talks about his son loving Key and Peel and the son being totally agnostic about what channel Key and Peel comes to him through. He just does, doesn't want to deal with ads. And that leads him to this trillion dollar question, why are people turning away from advertising? And then he posits this really interesting idea about infobesity, right? Which is a kind of a cool metaphor. There's all this junk, sort of informational nutrition coming to us through the web. That informational nutrition's junking up our intellectual metabolism. And that makes us kind of infobese. So in an, in an attempt to slim down and get this junk out of our lives, we start blocking things that don't immediately make sense. We don't immediately trust, hence ad blocking. And eventually he says all ads will be eaten alive by ad blocking. And what he means by that is, you know, he's really talking about ads that come to us in forms that were developed under the old command and control system of advertising, right? That's the old sort of the David Ogilvy uh, madman model where you have a product, you come to me, I make an ad for it. We put that ad on TV, we put it on radio, we put it into print, um, maybe we put it on some billboards and then next thing you know, everybody knows your product, right? If you spend enough money. And he kind of sets up that dynamic against this European university student who kind of cranks out this ad blocker software in his spare time and sort of completely disrupts the system under which Ogilvy and Bernbach and all the other titans of advertising hone their methods and their craft. And he kind of sets that up as the end of everything. Everything those men knew or thought they knew or developed. The end of advertising. Anyway, which, which begs the question, or, or actually doesn't beg the question. The question becomes, how big a deal are ad blockers, right? And on page 61, he says they're somewhere between the typewriter and the Gutenberg press. I don't agree with that. I think what he may really mean is ad blockers aren't that big a deal, but the ability to 
run around channels and and block out the stuff you don't want to deal with. Yeah, I, I have to agree with him. That is a pretty big deal. I don't know if it's between the typewriter and the Gutenberg press, though. Anyway, yeah, he has an t- unfortunate tendency towards overstatement. And the other people who are going to have trouble with this command and control system going away are the people who make the command and control stuff. So if you're if you're making uh, if you're making internet ads, yeah, yeah. If you make if you make a bunch of banner ads, then ad blockers are a pretty big deal. But uh, for reasons I'll get into in a while, I think that you know this channel this fragmentation thing actually is going to end up being very good, and we're going to end up with a lot more surface area on which to advertise. So then he lands on the Super Bowl, right? And he starts to use it to bolster the idea that creativity is really the hope of advertising because the Super Bowl is kind of this appointment television, right? We all have to watch it at the same time. Otherwise, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And while people are watching the Super Bowl, because Pete Rozelle did such a great job with sort of uh, making the NFL ad friendly, it's the perfect canvas on which to, to show traditional command and control format advertising. He says that that's your opportunity to, in this world where people can watch whatever they want, to be so good that you become content yourself, not interruption of content. He has this kind of cool, he has this kind of cool statement he uses, be the thing, not the thing that interrupts the thing, right? Which means, which is another way of, of saying, you have to be the content, you have to be the thing people want to watch. And he says, you know, it has to be crime drama or TV commercial, no difference. It's the same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm the same level of interest, both of these things. And, and then he sort of goes into this discussion of the National Association of Advertisers and shows that they recognize this. He quotes uh, a prominent um, marketer saying, you know, ad blockers represent c- consumer outrage. I, I don't know if it's outrage, but it's certainly consumer um, independence, which I think people are, people, you know, in the old command and control system are very uncomfortable with. So he sort of says at that point, you know, he's talking about Essex is talking about we need to do less and we need to tackle infobesity. But what is working? What what would the future of ads look like, you know, potentially in a, in a world where people could watch and consume however they like? Well, it might be sort of this idea of native advertising. So, for instance, a lipstick ad in Vogue, well, you're prepared to tolerate that. You might look at a lipstick ad in Vogue next to a beautiful photo shoot, and you wouldn't may, maybe necessarily filter that out. And then he contrasts that with adjacency ads or banner ads on the, on the internet and says, well, those aren't native. People aren't prepared to tolerate those. So we have to distinguish between ads people are prepared to tolerate and look at and ads people are not prepared to tolerate and look at. Then he talks about read-ins on podcasts and kind of puts out this idea that, you know, creators know their audience and they can make good calls about what they want. Later on in, in other chapters, he gets into a pretty interesting franchise that I'm not familiar with at all, the American Girl franchise, because I don't, I don't have a daughter. Apparently, American Girl has sort of created content and then monetized that content because they have a, some kind of story about the American Girl. And uh, then you can go buy a bunch of American Girl merchandise. The people I know who do that are Joe Rogan and Alex Jones, of course. They are the masters of that sort of advertising. They have become a brand and they also monetize their own brand with merchandise that they own. So that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I don't think it's, a, he, he sort of talks about how that's a, does that implicate the, in, the editorial independence of these channels? And I, I kind of think, well, and then he talks about pay for programming, like the Hulu model. So he thinks that's pretty cool. So then he pulls back from the death threat. He gets towards the end of the chapter. He pulls back from the death threat that ad blocking is going to kill advertising. He says, well, it'll always be on sports and it'll always be on, there'll always be people too poor to add, too, too poor or too disinterested or too cheap to pay for um, content. So you can advertise to those people. But then he sort of says, but who wants those people? Which kind of stuck in my craw a bit. And then he says, the real cure is creativity. The real cure for people not wanting to engage with advertising is creativity. Kind of makes sense. Expands on that and says, creativity means creatively adding value. So it's not just something like the Michael Phelps ad, which is kind of this beautiful feature film feeling content with a logo at the end of it, he's sort of saying we, we must add value. Either, I guess, in the case of, just to use this Michael Phelps video, a little harder, something interesting that you'd want to watch over and over and over and over again, which I think is a little bit of a problem when you're thinking about you know, advertising as content. We'll get into that in a bit. Well, advertising isn't just content. Advertising is a teaching tool right? And that's a little, you use a teaching tool a little bit differently than you use an entertainment tool, a teaching tool you tend to study. And if you're not voluntarily engaging with that teaching tool, 
you have to be exposed to it several times before you learn. So how do you get to a point? How, I mean, you're really setting the, setting the creative bar that high in order for it to be effective advertising. You end up having to make something that's so riveting that people are going to watch it 40 times. And I just don't. I have literally never seen a movie that I would want to watch 40 times. Not even High Fidelity or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So... So then he sort of says, you know, adding value is important. And, and then he cites the city bike campaign, which he's going to get into in much greater detail in later chapters as a template for the new campaign. It added value. It, it was effective for Citibank. I think there are a lot of problems with that. So he finishes up the chapter uh, like this. Quote, this is the new big idea. Brands can make the world a better place and they can make money doing it. Then he goes on, advertising as we know it is not the answer. Imagination, creativity, and an active distaste for pollution are the new necessary ingredient, along with the ability to see the difference between authenticity and artifice. And of course, dollars, which brands have in droves. It just requires a reallocation of resources and talent with the vision, character, and courage to implement those resources appropriately. So what I got from that is try harder, which again, I don't, I don't think, you know, conceptually, you're ever going to make content that's so good that it will fulfill the function that an ad needs to fulfill. An ad is a teaching tool, and that's putting it sort of charitably. An ad may, may is a way to jack into somebody's consciousness and um, get them to remember something that they don't necessarily want to remember. I don't know that you can reliably do that in the way that entertainment does it. I don't know that that's a professional way to go about that. Anyway, uh, so then he goes on to cite the 1984 commercial, which is a kind of a countervailing example to what I'm talking about. He cites the 1984 commercial, I think quite cleverly, as an ad that was so good it aired only once and then went on to become an icon, right? So that successfully, that ad, he, I think he would say, successfully kind of made, it, it, it achieved escape velocity. It kind of was so good, it shot up into the stratosphere and we all remember it forever and it's on YouTube and it, it sort of became a, a, a cultural... It took on a cultural reality of its own. Another, another campaign that I would put into that would be Terry Crews' uh, spots for Old Spice. Those were great. Those, again, achieved that sort of escape velocity or critical mass or whatever science-y metaphor you want to use and, and sort of became part of the culture for a while. I think the 1984 commercial actually is. But that's a one-off. That's a standalone. I don't know that as a, as a professional who's in the business of doing advertising day in and day out that you can really look a client in the eye and say, yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make content so good people are going to watch it and remember it for decades. I just don't. Maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe Dave Droga can do that. I'm not going to look somebody in the eye and do that. Anyway, okay. Problems with the chapter. I think trying harder and being better, which is what that quote was about in my, in my view, that quote I read, is not a new idea. It's not a new big idea. If we believe what he says in the very next chapter, Ivory Soap also made lives better and added value. So, I, you know, I don't know. Being better and adding value, I don't, I don't know if that's such a big idea um, or at least such a new idea. It's a big idea and it's certainly, um, he's certainly to be applauded for standing up for that ideal as something that advertising people need to think about. But I just don't think it's, you know, book worthy. In fact, you know, David Ogilvy could have written that quote. You know, I don't think there's anything in that quote that I read that there's this, that Ogilvy would disagree with or Bill Bernbach or Doug Draft, any of those guys. I don't think any of them would disagree with that. And they would likely also have admired the 1984 ad. Um, anyway, and I think he overestimates the danger from ad blocking. I mean, if you want to take him at his word, understand that the chapter or believe that the, uh, the chapter is about ad blocking. If the chapter is about people being more free on the internet to ignore ads, then yeah, yeah, he's not overestimating the danger. But I think he is underestimating advertising's importance and its ability to adapt. Finally, I think, and this I, 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 you got to kind of blame him for, I, I think he misunderstands the digital revolution and what its real significance is. The reason the digital revolution is important to advertising, I think, I think that's probably what we're going to realize in the next 10 years, is that it's a digital ecosystem. And you can go into that digital ecosystem and everybody is interacting on it now. There's just such huge numbers in there that it's basically creating a bunch of species that, like wildlife biologists, we can observe and understand and begin to differentiate. And once we understand their behavior, we can begin to interact with them more productively. So. I think that, yeah, is it an opportunity to advertise to people? It looks like that's more ambivalent and maybe more ambiguous than at first we thought. 
But I think that it's very clear that being able to see what people do online is really, really important for marketing. So for instance, think about Sergio Zyman. Remember that book about New Coke? And how one of the things I remember from that book, I didn't really look at it to prepare for this podcast. So if I'm wrong, please forgive me. But as I recall, one of the things he says is, we listened to the focus groups and they told us what we wanted to hear. Well, with the digital ecosystem, you don't need to rely on that tainted focus group dynamic. You can look at what people are actually doing. And that's really important. And he kind of alludes to that, but I think he kind of misses its importance. Um, and then finally, haven't people always hated advertising? And he's going to get into that in the next chapter. He says no, but I kind of don't know if I buy that. So advertising's origins. So he starts off uh, this chapter with a quote from Bill Bernbach, nothing kills a bad product faster than good advertising. And then he sort of makes fun of that and says it's not true, which I disagree with. And then he sort of does this funny two-step where he says, is, is advertising a bad product that was also killed by good advertising? Um, and it's a little confusing to me because I don't think that's the meaning of the Bernbach quote. Um, I think what Bernbach's saying is if you have a terrible product, don't lie about it because people will ultimately, all you'll do is drive people into a terrible experience and then your product will be destroyed and you'll never get another chance to launch that product. Or maybe any other product if it's bad enough. I think that's what he's mean. And, and what I think Essex tries to do is he sort of says, well, was advertising really good, but also really bad? And, and ultimately it killed itself, which I, I don't know. I think it's a, a, just a step too clever, frankly. So from there, he moves to the story of Procter & Gamble and Ivory Soap. And he basically makes the argument that there were these good guys in advertising, the guys that supported Procter & Gamble and Kellogg's and they created advertising that people really loved and it, and it made people's lives better. People decorated their homes with it. It was uh, a collection of decent and companionable myths, he says, quoting this guy, uh, Samuel Hopkins Adams. And these brands changed America for the better. You know, P&G made America cleaner. Keller, Kellogg's made America eat better, et cetera, et cetera. And these ads supported a giant wave of advertising that went into the magazines and later supported Andrew Essex, right? This is the beginning of the of the industry that he was around for the tail end of. But there's a snake in the garden, quite literally. Snake oil salesman. And uh, he also sort of points the finger at the people who sold patent medicine between 1850 and around 1900, saying, you know, the ad world was also involved in this terrible uh, set of lies about garbage. And he quotes people again, Adams and another guy named Lears, saying that these bunko men create a stench in the nostrils of the civilized world with their ridiculous hucksterism. And then he moves on to tell the story of aspirin and heroin, and I think he's sort of turning that into a metaphor. Aspirin was the good sort of Procter & Gamble Kellogg's thing that everybody recognizes as a great brand. It's still around today. People really love it. And heroin, of course, started it out as a legitimate product, um, I think also made by Bayer, and then went away because people realized heroin was a terrible thing. And, and so he sort of turns that into a metaphor for good and bad advertising, I think. And then he sort of goes on to say, the good guys won by the end of the First World War, and we kind of entered this golden age of advertising. And things sort of proceeded at this stately pace from print to radio to TV, which was the golden age of command and control, right? Like I was saying, there was just a few well-understood channels, and we could put advertising into those channels pretty efficiently, and it would be effective because there was no place else to consume content. You just, if you wanted to watch the six o'clock news, you had a limited number of choices and you were gonna see our ads for whatever we wanted during that time. And finally, he sort of says, we got to this point where advertising got a little bit sick, right? And a little self-referential. He said it's, it, was, it became capitalism's way to say, I love you to itself, Ugh, gross. And it sort of was criticized for creating a sick consumer culture of people who were easily manipulated and not critical. Then the internet shows up and this sort of infobesity and too muchness comes on and the channel fragmentation happens. And he doesn't really come out and say this, but that's where the freedom happens too. People suddenly are able to decide, well, how do I want to get my six o'clock news? And do I want to get my news at six o'clock or do I want to get it on Instagram or do I want to get it from Drudge Report? You get it. So there's where the story ends, actually. And I think that, you know, he's, I, I think what I got out of the chapter, it was sort of hard to follow, actually, was that advertising did a really good job and then became sick and it kind of killed itself off because, again, the command and control paradigm 
fragmented and didn't make sense when people had the freedom to go look around at different ways to consume advertising. I'm kind of reading into that a little bit more than I would like to, though, because like I said, I, I thought this was kind of a, felt like an unfinished thought. I think there's some really good thoughts in there. I think it would benefit from being tied together a little bit better. And I think also he misses World War I's real impact on advertising. When we do Tim Wu's book next, we'll see that Wu does a really good job of telling the story of how advertising proved itself to the establishment, that is big government, during World War I when it was successful in getting large numbers of people to sign up to fight. World War I is not a waypoint. It's a watershed. And I think he kind of missed that. I, I didn't get that out of what I was reading in his chapter. And then I, I, t I sort of take exception to his history of, of patent medicines. You know, he kind of cites things like Coke with cocaine in it, which I think is fairly obvious and a little lazy. And then those cough medicines that used to have laudanum in it. And he says, oh, look, and he waves his arms around and says, oh, look how terrible they were. And I think the story is a little more complicated than that. He's really reading history backwards and, and sort of looking at those remedies from the uh, perspective of a sophisticated, scientifically advanced person in 2017, when in fact, Coke did pet people up. It just didn't, it just was a bad therapeutic index. It, yeah, sure, it gives you a lot of pep with cocaine in it, but that's not worth it. And the same with those cough medicines. Those cough medicines did work. You're going to stop coughing. It's just that the therapeutic index isn't right, so they, they don't sell them anymore. Now, were there a lot of revolting cures that people knew were no good? Yes, absolutely. And he does a good job of telling the stories of some of those really obviously fraudulent cures. There's no way anybody could have thought, even at the time, that those things were going to work. And so good on Andrew Essex for, you know, he got that part right, but I think he paints with too broad a brush. And then I think, I, I just don't buy the, I just don't buy the narrative. I, I think that people have always disliked advertising on some level. And you even see that in the, you even see that in the history he writes. He just tries to say that people love the Procter & Gamble and the Kellogg, sort of the big advertising material. They didn't love the patent medicine stuff. They, they, and they never did. And so I think advertising is always, I, I don't think he really succeeds in telling this clear story of there was a golden age and we did a good job and, and then something went wrong and we messed it up. I, I, just don't, I just don't buy that. For that argument to succeed, you have to believe that patent medicines were this sort of awful thing that nobody was really engaged in and, and there was this big bright line between the two. And I, I don't, I, I, he, doesn't, he doesn't really show how that, that was true. So yeah, it's a, I think it's probably the weakest chapter of the whole book. So then Essex moves on to this thing called the future of advertising. He starts to talk about ads that are designed to appear in the context of command and control. And he sets Ogilvy up as a straw man. He uses Ogilvy's quote that there's no uh, correlation between liking an ad and being sold by it and says, well, David, I, I disagree. I think actually you need to like an ad in order to be sold by it, right? And that's of a piece with his his new philosophy that the only way we're going to be able to compete and get people's attention is by making content that is so good that people are going to want to consume it exactly like they consume, say, their favorite detective show or Game of Thrones. I don't think he really succeeds here either. So, but let's go through what he, let's go through what he says. So he starts off with an interesting digital insight that the web is not a magazine, right? It, even though it's, it has pages, adjacency is not native to the web, right? So this is sort of coming back to his theme that the formats of advertising that were developed in the command and control era are no longer working as well as they used to in an era where consumers are free to move around and have many more channels to choose from and have a choice of behavior within those channels. Yeah, definitely not going to work, right? And then he talks about context, which I think is really smart. At Douglas and Rungi, we talk a lot about context and content and putting content in the right context. Uh, and he's right on here. I totally agree with him. He talks about context and that the fact that there's a ton going on and you need to make sure that you're in the right place at the right time with the right message. Then he talks a little bit more about too muchness. He makes this point about too muchness that by this time should be very familiar to you. Too much is going on to hold attention if you're not riveting, right? So if you're not the Michael Phelps ad, nobody's going to pay attention to you and you're just not going to, nobody's going to come visit you to consume your advertising. So when people don't succeed in this, that when people don't succeed in making advertising content that's as riveting as, say, uh, Game of Thrones, people get hostile. They get mad because you're wasting their time. Fair enough. And then he comes back to football and he says, again, everybody watches football. So it's still command and control still works there because in order to watch the football in a time and a way that makes sense, right? Because we don't, 
very few of us watch the Super Bowl two weeks later, right? We all watch the Super Bowl that Sunday night. Um, it's the perfect spot for commercials, right? And he says, then he turns around, and he smacks them in the face and says, well, they're the bait of my existence because they're not actually very good. The commercials are not very good. He hates the content of the ads, and but he can't, at the same time, he can't deny that they work, you know? And he kind of shows his elitism. He kind of, through a quote of a marketing manager he doesn't name, he says, yeah, you know, I know buying a ton of, of these repetitive ads that show again and again that we sort of premiere at the Super Bowl. They work on the masses. And then the guy says, but you know what they say about the masses. And so we're all invited to have a laugh at the expense of the people who support our industry, which, I, which is unforgivable. He, he clearly doesn't even have the integrity to stand up and say, yeah, you know what? I don't, uh, I don't really believe that the people that I sell to are worthy of respect. They're just a bunch of rubes that I jerk around by the nose. Then he gets into this story, which is, again, a kind of an annoying story, where he starts to talk about this public works value idea, right? And he starts to think about the channel of the public space, roads, bridges, uh, and the New York City subway. And he tells this story that doesn't really make sense outside of New York City, but he finds himself on the, on the uh, train between Brooklyn and Manhattan, and the train as they do, stops, and there's no Wi-Fi. Horrible. And he looks up, and he sees this Jaeger, Jaegermeister ad, Be the Nightmeister. And he doesn't like the ad. He presumes nobody on the train likes the ad, which is weird, because the New York City subway is one of the most democratic places in the world. And while he probably, yeah, it's probably not meant to appeal to the chairman of a, of a major ad agency, there's a lot of other people writing that trade, and he doesn't even pause to consider if somebody might be into that ad or might be talking to somebody. And it's a little weird to think about the chairman of Droga 5 not understanding segmentation. That's my quibble. But he does realize that owning a subway car is a good idea, and those of you who spend time in New York know the S train between Grand Central and uh, Times Square. They've been doing that for years. You, you go in there, and, the, and someone has bought those trains and sort of papered them, and they do a really nice job. They're beautifully done. And I guess, and that is starting to happen throughout the MTA. And then he gets into city bike. City bike, he thinks, is like the perfect example of how you add value. And he does a very nice summary of how it came about. And his skill as a magazine writer is on display here. It's a very nice narrative of how the city bike campaign was fought for and how it came to be. And it's, it's really pretty interesting. But then he falls down in his criteria for success. And this is where I, I part company with him. He starts talking about how the city bike program uplifted the brand of Citibank, which of course it needed at about the time the city bike program started, of course, with their rule and the financial crisis, etc. He said it was successful because it was popular. And he said that it was successful because the favorable impressions of Citibank went up 28 points to 72%. And the number of people who would consider one of the Citibank products was up 43 points. And then he turns around and says, well, but all these don't really matter. It was just these KPIs don't really matter. They were just created to satisfy bean counting actuaries. Right? And I think that, again, is really unforgivable. I think that's that kind of approach to data and ROI is just not appropriate to today's business environment. I think he did a good job setting up Citibank's City Bike program. I think he did a really bad job of sort of trying to pass it off as successful. And then he goes back to uh, his his headline, be the thing, not the thing that interrupts the thing, which I think is cool. I think there's a legitimate place for that. And he goes into American Girl, like I talked about before. He talks about the Lego movie being an example of how a brand can be so strong that it goes out in the world and can create content about itself and make money on people going to see the content and also merchandise the thing that people are going to see, right? Being the thing, not the thing that interrupts the thing. And then he talks about a very, really interesting story about Chipotle, where apparently Jonathan Safran Foer and tells a story about uh, Foer coming to him and saying, you know, let's put, let's put reading material on the food wrappers at Chipotle, which I thought that's pretty brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's got some, he's got some pretty good ideas for advertising. I think his, his performance indicators and his, and his respect for performance indicators are just way out of line. And they're so out of line, I think, that that calls into question the whole things I kept craving, something beyond, isn't this super cool? Because I, I just don't think super cool cuts it. It's got to be super effective. Then he admits advertising will never really go away, right? People are always going to watch sports and there are always going to be people who are too poor or too disengaged to pay for commercial free content. And then he kind of, there's the elitism again. He says, 
But who wants them? Who cares about them? Well, I don't know. You might care about them depending on if they over-index for your segments. And then he takes a super cheap shot, cheaper even than Jägermeister, at DTC Pharma ads. And and here again, like there's the, I think the thinking here is a little sloppy. He sort of takes off DTC Pharma ads and, and totally shits on them, and they deserve it. They are hands down creatively the worst the worst genre of advertising out there but i mean you have to but then he goes on to say these these ads are an epidemic and they're changing the relationship between physician and patient and they have to be stopped and they're going to be stopped without ever really resolving the tension between if they're so bad and so ineffective how is it that they're changing the relationship between the physician and the patient how is it they're making such a nuisance of themselves that Somebody has to address them. Really buy that. I don't have respect for that, that logic. And pharma ads, in their own way, in their badness, have kind of achieved a kind of escape velocity. And if you don't believe me, go look at the Movantic parody ad that this guy named Mac from Boston does on YouTube. And I challenge you not to laugh until you cry. Then he kind of says, instead of doing those, why don't you do a bunch of documentaries on how bad it is to be sick? Which, yeah, fair enough. Okay. That's a good, that's a good way to go. But I, again, I, I found myself craving some insight into the target that made documentaries something that they wanted, right? It's just, it's, it's one thing to sort of say, wouldn't it be great to do a documentary? It's another thing to explain why Pfizer should do a documentary on, you know, disease state X, and then who should they show it to? I just, none of that was answered for me. And then he goes on to say, well, what about ferries or branded infrastructure? It's so much nicer than that awful Verizon building. And that's the one in Manhattan. And if you live in Brooklyn, you know what I'm talking about. Stand on the promenade and look up towards the Brooklyn Bridge. And there it is, staring back at you. Then he takes a trip to ad establishment land and, and sort of spends some time letting us know that they hate bad ads too, right? And they say things like, you know, we celebrate the 5% or the 0.01%, I forget, some tiny percentage of ads that are good. And let's just admit that 95% of the stuff we make is terrible. Which, I don't know, I think, that's, I think that's very easy kind of creative virtue signaling. Of course, we all want to make the Michael Phelps ad. Of course we do. That's why you get into advertising. No creative goes into advertising thinking, I want to make the head-on commercial. If you don't know the head-on commercial, just YouTube that. I apologize in advance. Although, every time you have a headache from now on, you will think of that commercial. Nobody gets into advertising thinking they want to make the head-on commercial. Nobody. But... At the same time, you know, if you're going around sort of ceaselessly complaining about the number that, you know, the tiny proportion of ads that are any good and the huge proportion that are terrible, and then that's the state of affairs for year after year after year. And let's face it, that is the state of affairs and has been the state of affairs for year after year after year after year after year. Well, your protests start to seem a little hollow and they start to seem a little bit more like virtue signaling. So that that whole section kind of caught me wrong, too. And then he finishes with a manifesto. And his manifesto goes like this. Context is as important as content. And that's absolutely true. Douglas and Rungi, that's exactly how we think. You have to make sure that your ad makes sense and is relevant in the context that it, it's a huge part of the game these days. It's a bigger part than ever before. That Nielsen study in the show notes, take a look at it if you don't believe it. But he doesn't really get into that, and I think he kind of passes. He loses a big opportunity, in my view, to really get into that issue. He kind of treats it in a surfacey way and keeps going. Then he says, "Manners matter." Sure, yeah. Don't be, don't be a jerk. Don't be a, don't be a, uh, don't be intrusive and jarring in your tone. Sure, makes sense. Although I don't know if the makers of Head On would agree. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Fair enough. And then he gets, says, "No gas," which is advertising for no one gives a shit tell interesting stories and ignore the lizard brain. I totally disagree with this. I think you could tell interesting stories all day. Um, you're never going to be as good as real interesting stories, right? It's like the old adage, given the choice between a fake Republican and a real Republican, people choose the real Republican every time, right? Faced with a choice between an ad masquerading as content, right? And an ad is always going to masquerade as content because an ad's agenda is different from content agenda. People are going to choose the genuine content every time, every single time, except in extraordinary cases. Okay, I just said every single time. Fine. The Apple 1984 ad, the Old Spice stuff. Yes, yes, there are a few campaigns that break through that. But if you're going to 
as I said before, you're going to look a client in the eye and tell them you can deliver on that every single time. I don't know. That kind of reminds me of the days when people used to say, I want a viral video. Well, that's not really up to you, right? I mean, you can try. I mean, we'd all, we all you can try, but it's that kind of sort of cultural alchemy is not entirely up to us. And so saying ignore the lizard brain, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's responsible. If you can't be interesting, be useful. Who can disagree with that? If they, if the girls don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. And uh, that's, I think, the same, same sort of advice. Um, who can argue with that? Micro-targeting, he doesn't like micro-targeting. He says micro-targeting equals junk mail and you should avoid it at all costs. Totally disagree. Micro-targeting, back to my thing about the lizard brain and content and context, micro-targeting is an incredibly great way to get to the people who want to hear your message. Data is a tool, not a product. I, I guess, I don't know, I didn't really, I don't think he really made, that, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Measure what matters. So that was interesting. He kind of, he kind of talked about, what, the, the, the most interesting thing about that is he, he said, what's the cost of being annoying? Which brought me up short. I was sort of really hating on him by this point. And I, and I thought, well, you know what? Fair play to you, sir. That's pretty good. But measuring what matters, fair enough. That's fine. But you've got to measure You've got to try to measure. It's not enough to say measure what matters and then do what he does and say intuition is a great gift from the gods. That's his next manifesto point. And say, go fight with the analytics guy. That's just not, that's not bargaining in good faith. We need, to, we need to really, as creative, we really need to pay attention to what analytics are telling us. We really need to, to sit down with our colleagues in the media buyers and we've got to sit down with our colleagues in analytics and we've got to figure out what consumers are asking for and to some degree give it to them, right? Otherwise, otherwise we'll just be the ersatz content competing with the real content, and that's just not a fight we can win, right? We're gonna, we're gonna always be the fake content every single time. And then finally, the last thing of his manifesto is adapt or die, uh, which I don't think anybody would disagree with. I think uh, that's your daily reality as a ad person, absolutely. So what's my take on, what's my take on this book at the end of the day? So first of all, we'll just, I'll just go through the writing. I've alluded to this in some places. The writing, the tone is really rough. It's snarky. It's elitist. There's a lot of creative virtue signaling. It's very much a frame of reference that's centered in Manhattan, probably somewhere around 34th Street. The frame of reference is inside the media establishment. And I think that whole edifice is shaky and getting shakier. And I think the trouble isn't advertising the activity. I think it's the institutions, and as a person that's dwelled in those institutions for an extremely long time, he's an institutional guy, right? Big magazines, um, while Droga 5 was a small ad shop, they had big clients, and then the Tribeca Film Festival, maybe the biggest film festival in the country. I think these large institutions doing big mass, mass advertising campaigns that need to be profitable to make as well as deploy, I think maybe their time is over. But that's not the end of advertising. That's the end of these giant mass advertising operations. And I think they're the people that need to worry the most about the end of command and control. Because as people are more free to run around and avoid the advertising they're, we're trying to cram down their throats, well, we're going to have to be a lot more delicate and a lot more intelligent about how we find the right content and the right context. Because that he really did get right. So that people will interact with advertising as advertising and find it valuable as advertising. Because again, I don't, I don't buy that we're ever going to compete with genuine content. It's just, I just don't see it. Not, not on a day-to-day -day level. Not, not in the way that advertising really needs to behave. So the thinking, I think, like I said, he has an unfortunate tendency to overstate things. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric is overblown. Adding value is key to the new thinking that we need, we need to surprise and delight. I don't, didn't Ivory do that? That's what I thought the point he made about Procter & Gamble uh, in his history chapter did. So is this also radical? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think it's like a big new idea. I just don't think it lives up to the, like I said, I, I don't think it's book worthy. I don't think City Bike is a great solution. I mean, if it's a success and the metrics are laughable that he cites, they're just not. He doesn't show that it's a success in any way. Uh, he admits it would be a one-off. And what about local businesses? What do I do if I'm running a hardware store or I'm an optometrist or I'm, you know, uh, fill in the blank? What do you do if you're not a multi-billion dollar company? What do you do if you're just a couple of hundred million dollar company? 
Uh, I've talked about this before, but there was an unforgivable lack of respect for data and return on investment. Look, we all love great creative. Everybody loves great creative. And I, I hope I'm not coming off like I don't care about creative. I really, really do. It matters to me to do beautiful work that people like. But we need to admit that math works and that we are in business to make money. We have to admit that. I don't think creatives can survive if we're just constantly getting in these impassioned fights about why, you know, we need to be a sexy stand-up beefsteak tomato and you don't understand what you're talking about, Mr. Math Nerd. That's, that's just not, that's not a good look. That's just not going to work. And not only is it not going to work in the short term, like you're not going to win the argument, you're also going to make terrible, ineffective advertising and you're going to waste people's money and you're going to waste your time. So unless we pay attention to KPIs, unless we sit down with the media buyers, unless we sit down with the analytical people and we figure out what's going to work. So two other ideas I really wanted to see develop more were infobesity. I loved it. Content, context. Like I said, we talk about that a lot at uh, Douglas and Rungi. And uh, I think it was there, but just enough to tantalize, not enough to really. If you want to hear more about that, give us a call and we'll, we'll be happy to fill you in on our perspective on it. So to sum up, let's talk about the framework that I brought up at the beginning of the podcast. What is good advertising? Is good advertising awards? Essex clearly thinks it is. From my perspective, and you can agree with me or disagree, good advertising moves product, period. That's the kind of ad guy I am. And that's the kind of ad guy we are at Douglas and Rungi. You know, we can discuss the value of the brand. We can talk about how brands communicate. And I, and I get it. I mean, there's, there's externalities that go beyond just the mere transaction of I saw the, the ad and I, and I bought your product. There's lifetime value of uh, customers, for instance. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, got it. Brands have value. Absolutely. We can discuss attribution and attribution models. But if there's no string at all leading from the ad to the sale, you just wasted, like I said, you've wasted your time and you've wasted your client's money. It's, and you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Are Ogilvy and Birnbach fallen titans? No. No. The quotes that he lays out are all still right. And the only time he sort of succeeds in, in knocking them down is when he twists them a little bit. Advertising is eternal. It's a basic human activity that's been industrialized. We do business in, on a big, big scale. And as long as we're doing business on big scales, we're going to need communication on a big scale. And that's advertising. So what's the deal with digital? Is it going to kill advertising? Well, by now, you, should see, you, should, you, should probably, you can probably see where I'm going with this. No, not in any important sense. It might kill these forms of advertising that are artifacts from the command and control era. So it might kill a banner ad, which really is just a magazine ad translated to the internet. Yeah, it might kill that. I think in the end, it's going to become just another channel because it does have places where, like, like Andrew Essex says, their advertising can be native to it, right? Like read-ins to podcasts or some kinds of pre-roll or, you know, I'm sure we'll sort of work that out. But it's probably never going to be a super great channel. I think when they write the book on digital, in another 20 years, they're going to say, looked like a great channel, turned out to not be a great channel, but boy, did we learn a lot about observation and differentiation of consumers. And that's the true value. Is advertising icky? A lot of people feel that way, but uh, I think advertising is actually the kind of a, a signaling protein of capitalism, right? Like a hormone. And that's the key to its future. Okay, here's what I mean by that. People are always going to be looking for commercial information. That's a basic human activity, right? We all want to know what's going on around us. And we want to know about products and services that are available to us. Sometimes we want the, that information consciously. Sometimes we want it unconsciously. And advertising provides that information from the people who are in the best position to provide it. The people who are selling that, those products are, have the means, the motive, and the opportunity to give us the right information. And that's the value of advertising. So to continue the, the signaling protein thing, Say you're in the market for some headphones. Well, you sort of put up your headphone signaling protein on the surface of your cell, and along comes, you know, the advertising I've thrown out into the bloodstream, and it, 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 the game is to connect it with your receptor, right? I want to get my protein. The advertisers want to get their signaling protein onto your receptor. That's what they want to do. That's the game. And that's never going to go away. And, by the way, that's the value of micro-targeting. Micro-targeting is figuring out where those receptors are. It's the value of analytics. In a way, to continue the biological metaphor, it's like, a, like an interest assay. If you could do a 
DNA test for interest. That's kind of the value of analytics and micro-targeting. You can find out where the interest is and you can go there. So maybe the white space will be different looking. Probably will be. In fact, you can be sure it will be. But it will be there. That's my take on Andrew Essig's book. I, I've kind of been kind of rough on him. I think uh, I would really like to hear more about his time at Droga 5. I think he has a lot to say. I think he's a really interesting writer. He's a good writer. I just think this book was a little bit, it, it felt a little bit loose. And in some places, as I said, the arguments don't make sense. And I just can't agree with them on what, what advertising is really for and what it's about. So with that, I'm going to thank you for your time. Next up, we are going to be looking at Tim Wu's amazing book, The Attention Merchants. Stay tuned. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Veloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. I did it myself. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Rungi, an advertising and marketing consultants. See you next time. <laughs>